Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated first by Walter Lippmann during World War II that U.S. foreign policy and national security policy is the shield that protects our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I am a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center and a Bulwark contributor. I will be joined in future podcasts by my partner in crime and strategic analysis, Elliot Cohen, the Osgood professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and newly named as the Arlie Burke Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And our inaugural guest on Shield of the Republic is Dr. Carter Malkazian. Dr. Malkazian is a renowned scholar of Afghanistan and a practitioner, having led a provincial reconstruction team in the Garmzer district in Afghanistan and is the author of War Comes to Garmzer, and most recently author of a massive history of the American war in Afghanistan, published in July by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Carter. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you so much, Ambassador, and thank you for the very kind introduction. General Milley, said that the Afghanistan war was a strategic failure. Uh, Is that an assessment that you agree with? And uh, if so, tell us why. Well, I think it unfortunately is an assessment I agree with. And him saying it in some ways makes it easier for me to say it. Because saying that we failed in Afghanistan or we lost is, I feel like when I'm saying it, uh, that I'm insulting all the servicemen and women who I've worked with. Um, so it's not an easy statement to say whatsoever, but I suppose the chairman's saying it makes it easier for everyone else to, to swallow. So the United States has had varying goals in Afghanistan over time. One of the goals that has always been there was uh, to defeat um, al-Qaeda. And on the basis of what we've done for the last 20 years, we've certainly done a lot of damage to al-Qaeda, but it's hard to say that they're, they, I mean, they're still there. So it's hard to say that they've been entirely defeated. And we're worried now that we could see a resumption of attacks in the future. Another goal that the United States, and this goal really comes up from the Obama administration onwards, is to stand up an Afghan government to enable them to stand on its own so we can leave. That obviously did not happen. And Honestly, we can look back even to 2015 and see that that wasn't going to work. We've known for some time that without our air support and without our military support, that the Afghan government was likely to fall. Maybe not in 11 days, but it was known that this was pretty likely to happen. So in that sense, we've known for a while that we didn't prevail and we probably lost. Then if you look at some of our other goals that we've had that were more expansive, um, such as to actually defeat the Taliban, well, that, that wasn't met. Um, to set up a, a strong, enduring democracy that, that wasn't met. Um, some of the goals I think we did meet in terms of improving women's rights, improving education, but now we're wondering if that's going to last. And right now, those are in abeyance. So just if I take a very strict kind of step-by-step look at what goals we had and if they were met or not, uh, then it comes up with, no, we, we did not succeed. Let me ask you, uh, one of the things that came up uh, in a question between Congressman Mike Gallagher, a former Marine himself, and General McKenzie, uh, was the question of McKenzie and Ambassador Khalilzad's meeting with Mullah uh, Baradar in Doha right as 
the roof was falling in in Afghanistan. And apparently in that conversation, they had been negotiating a short-term arrangement with the Taliban in which uh, the Taliban would not enter Kabul for a couple of weeks and some kind of interim government would be, pardon the pun, cobbled together uh, by the Taliban negotiators uh, with what was left of the Ghani government. And that was apparently upset or overturned by Ghani's sudden flight from Kabul. And uh, Barter said, well, who's going to supply security in Kabul now that Ghani has uh, has fled? Do you Americans want to do it or do you want us uh, to come in and uh, take over security? And, and General McKenzie apparently said, well, my mission is to only evacuate from the airport and that's all I'm authorized uh, to do. In the first instance, you know, sh- should this have been reported back, and should it have been explored further before Mackenzie just reverted to, you know, narrow construction of the mission? I mean, this does seem like a pretty serious—not just military operational question, but a political question as well. So, thank you for uh, for that. It is a, a deeply intriguing question. I mean, I should probably say from the outset that I mean, I do know General Mackenzie, and I do know Ambassador Khalilzad as, as, as well. So for one thing, I don't have a lot of the information. So I I don't know if it wasn't reported back to Washington, nor do I know if what instructions General McKenzie went there with. Um, if he he may have known very clearly what his what his limits were and what he was allowed to do and wasn't and and wasn't allowed to do. Um, and so I'm just simply not aware enough of what the administration has said and what the administration was feeling like in terms of were they willing to secure Kabul, were they willing to put more troops on the ground if they had to secure Kabul. It clearly would have required more troops. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's pretty likely. Um, but perhaps what I can say that's more useful is that we have to wonder if the Taliban could stop themselves from going into Kabul. And my considered assessment there is that they could not. The incentive of Taliban commanders to go inside Kabul once that opening was there was going to be tremendous, just like they had great incentive throughout this year to attack locations that were weak and to start advancing because that opportunity was present. There's lots of information that even when that meeting was happening, the Taliban were already inside Kabul. Um, So I'm, I'm not sure how much really there was any kind of opportunity that existed at that point to set a different course. I mean, it's, it's been very clear now that the Taliban intended on taking over Afghanistan by force. And there isn't actually any good evidence that I've seen that the Taliban were going to form any kind of transitional government, um, even if there had been a wait. They've had months, over a month now to talk to, to Karzai and Dr. Abdul, and nothing has happened. They had an opportunity to negotiate with, before their entry to Panjshir. They did none of that. They attacked Panjshir. Uh, they attacked Panjshir. So I, I don't. I just given the information we have now and the costly signals and actions the Taliban have taken so far, it seems clear that their intent, once the opportunity arose, was to seize power by force. During the early summer, starting in uh, June and July, you start to see a lot of district uh, governments falling. I mean, you don't see provincial capitals falling until August, but th- this started to become pretty clear in sort of you know early July, mid-July that this was heading in this direction. Should there have been some kind of pause to you know rethink all this uh, before you started to see all the capitals of provinces falling? Well, I think this should have been a concern. 
back all the way to the Obama administration. When one says that you're going to leave, it offers opportunities to, to the adversary. They're going to have incentive to take things by force. And their incentives change over time. The, the, just because the Taliban say at one point we're willing to have a political settlement doesn't mean they're still going to feel that way when they see that they can take things by force. This is something that's well understood in political science, well understood in the study of diplomacy. People are going to change on the basis, change their intent on the basis of what their incentives are. So we should have been aware of that in the first place. Now, when could we see that this was likely happening? So when the negotiations were happening for the um, agreement with the Taliban that was signed in February of, of 2020, there was a sense that may have been wrong or may have been right, that the Taliban had some interest in a political settlement. But what we didn't know is how much the Taliban were going to decide not to do that and shift to doing things by force. Through a decent amount of 2020, it was a little bit unclear. They had done some attacks, some things, but it looked like it normally was. Um, so it looks like what you would expect in a negotiation when war is going on. There's fighting and talking. You'd expect that to happen. That fighting and talking is allowed by the fact that there's a stalemate, that neither side can actually gain all that much ground. Neither side is, is becoming dominant on the battlefield. But that situation changed dramatically at the end of 2020, in really October, November of that year. In that year, they start to make market gains um, in Helmand and places in the north, and they basically get to the outskirts of Kandahar at that time. So the stalemate that had been existent previously was broken then. And then I think a reasonable analysis at that point had to say that the Taliban now have much less incentive to pursue a political settlement. That their opportunity now exists in taking things and in, in seizing things by force. So I'm, I'm really interested in that observation, Carter. So October, November of 20, the timing, of course, seems particularly interesting given the domestic political activity going on in the United States. In your view, was that timed specifically uh, to coincide with the U.S. election? Was it based on some calculation they were making at that point that no matter who was elected, since both candidates had said they wanted to end the endless war, that they were on a, a trajectory of the U.S. being out by May 1st? So I'm not sure it's domestic politics. It could be. I don't want to, I don't want to take that out. The, the immediate explanation that comes readily to mind is the Taliban usually launch, launch offenses sometime between September and November. And it's got something to do with the fighting seasons coming to an end, the winter's coming, only have so many weapons left, you have to make a good push at, at the end of the year. So it's a, a traditional time to do something that does still raise the question of why did they decide to actually attack Kandahar when they hadn't really attacked Kandahar since 2014? What made them decide um, to conduct that attack at that time? The best guess I have is that they had by then made an assessment that they could take ground and they weren't so committed to political settlement that they were unwilling to do that. You've made an important point both in your book and in a very powerful uh, essay in Politico drawn from the book, that at the end of the day, what explains the outcome is that the Taliban were able to associate themselves with elements of Afghan national identity, uh, particularly Islam and uh, hostility to foreign occupation that enabled them to uh, get people who were willing to fight to the death uh, and that our Afghan partners and allies were never able to tap into uh, those kinds of motivational forces 
I remember when I went to Afghanistan myself, when I was under Secretary of Defense, you know, talking to the trainers, they said, it's not like these guys lack the will to fight. Fighting, you know, comes pretty naturally to Afghans. That wasn't really the issue, but the motivational force that you laid out, it seems important. So talk a little bit about that. No, absolutely. Um, and so, and, and again, it's, it's not to say the Afghans don't fight. Um, Afghans do fight. But the question is, why so often do their posts fall? Do their forces in the field get ambushed or forced to retreat? When often these forces outnumber the adversary, have more weapons than the adversary, better weapons, better ammunition. Why is it that we so often see that they weren't able to hold on their own? And you can look at it kind of a flip way, too. Why is it that we see the Taliban willing to conduct uh, IED suicide attacks in the heart of government control areas, in the cities where they have the most control, and we see no such action by, by the government forces? What's it that causes this to happen? Now, there's a, there's, there are many reasons and many conditions, but what I was trying to lay out is that I was seeing something that I thought hadn't really been fully discussed or mentioned before, and that's that the Taliban are able to better symbolize, better represent kind of what it means to be Afghan. Afghanistan's history is of, a large part of its history is of repelling invaders and repelling occupiers. And that history is thick in their poetry. It's thick in their stories. Um, It's thick in how they talk about themselves. I mean, you go through Kabul and there's Independence Day and there's the great leaders and neighborhoods that are named after the people who fought these wars. Wazir Akbar Khan, the neighborhood where most of the um, Westerners lived in Afghanistan. That neighborhood was named after the Afghan prince who took the head off of the uh, British consul um, who was in Afghanistan at the time, in, in, in 1840. This is something that run, runs within Afghanistan's history and actually precedes the British time there. It goes back to fighting the Mughals, it goes back to fighting the, the Iranian Empire, so that's there. The Taliban are able to tap upon this because the Taliban are fighting occupation. The Taliban can rightly claim to be fighting a jihad um, against, against occupation. The Taliban also have the benefit that they are largely religious students and religious scholars and religious leaders. So they can say that what they are doing is Islamic. And I'm not trying to say Islam is like violent or supports terrorism or something like that. That's not, that's not really the point at all. The point is that they have a legitimacy in saying what they're doing accords with the religion of the country. And we have the disadvantage of not being Muslim. The government has the disadvantage of being aligned with us. So think about if you're, like, if you're a young soldier. If you're a young soldier in Afghanistan, you're being paid to go and fight. But if you're living in the countryside, you'll live in a village, and that village will probably have a mullah or two who will talk about this history and talk about obligations under Islam. And a mullah who's been very unlikely to criticize jihad in any kind of way. The people in your village will perhaps not know what your job is or perhaps wonder why you've decided to be a soldier. And now you're going to go from that situation and go and fight for the country. How much are you actually willing to sacrifice in that situation? In many villages, we know they would readily bury the Taliban with appropriate honors and the appropriate ceremony. We also know that in many villages, if you were a soldier getting buried, you'd be buried off in a plot to the side where the family couldn't be shamed and your, your name and your death couldn't be, couldn't be shamed. So this affects the inspiration and the willingness of, of men to fight in Afghanistan. It, expect, it affects the willingness of them to kill or to be killed. And in that, the Taliban had, the, had an edge. There's one survey that was done 
it was an Afghan uh, NGO research institution did the survey. And it was the seven different provinces of the police forces in those provinces. And they asked, um, why do these men decide to join the police? And some of them cited duty, some of them cited money, some of them decided that they, well, they feel they're a part of the Afghan nation. But only 10% of them said that they had joined the police in order to fight. I can assure you that more than 10% of the Taliban joined being willing and interested in fighting. And that same survey also said that the police had great concern about working uh, for anything that was un-Islamic, anything that could be um, connoted as not being proper in an Islamic fashion. And that just points to the kind of problems the government was going to have in inspiring. You've talked about Karzai, President Karzai, recognizing this problem himself and discussing it with uh, American officials. Talk a little bit about that. Tell us about that story. So um, President Karzai, is, he, so I've both uh, General Eikenberry and Ambassador Eikenberry and General McChrystal have cited the story. And so I think they both heard it separately. Um, is it, and, and it essentially goes like this. Karzai says, uh, General, we can't have an insurgency in Afghanistan. There's an insurgency. It means that some group is questioning my legitimacy to rule. And since you are here, you can be called occupiers. And I can be termed as a puppet. And since Afghanistan is a pious Islamic country, then they can rightly declare jihad against you and me. So you see, General, there can be no insurgency. And of course, in saying that, he was recognizing what actually was. And like what's interesting about that, and Karzai I find to be a tremendously fascinating character uh, and who I understand why Americans largely loathe him. But he like recognizes this problem. So how does he try to solve that? He tries to solve it by saying, okay, well, Pakistan is the enemy. We'll paint Pakistan as, as the adversary. Maybe not paint, he probably really believed that Pakistan was the enemy. So I'll solve my problem by dealing with Pakistan. I won't solve the problem by declaring that the Taliban are the enemy. I won't solve the problem by trying to fight the Taliban, at least directly, because that just gives them legitimacy. I will go and focus on Pakistan. And he tried to encourage the United States to go to, to go fight Pakistan. And he was sometimes misled by President Bush because President Bush was very compassionate towards Karzai. He sometimes, Karzai sometimes misread that compassion to believe the United States would actually help against Pakistan. And he tries to then follow that up with President Obama, um, but that doesn't really you know, go anywhere. And that just leads him to be more frustrated, more critical of the United States, trying to find a basis of legitimacy for himself. And he'd do that by criticizing the United States as well, um, being upset about civilian casualties. Um, but this conundrum is, you know, so you can see how it's affecting, it affects his behavior as well. Yeah, Karzai is a fascinating character. He uh, said to me on one of my visits, meeting with him in 2007, that uh, on the Pakistan question, he said the the problem we have is that Afghanistan is a, a nation without a state, and uh, Pakistan is a state uh, without a nation. And he clearly was uh, trying to focus on Pakistan uh, for good reason, given the safe haven that they had created for the Taliban. It wasn't without uh, without reason. I, you know, I don't compassion may be the wrong word for President Bush's attitude towards Karzai. I my, my sense of it was that he had enormous empathy for Karzai's position. I, I think he he recognized that Karzai was, with very few instruments of power, trying to hold together a very complex society 
that's riven with uh, ethnic and tribal divisions, and that he was forced to rely on us to some degree. And so I think he, in part, was trying to you know, keep uh, Karzai's morale up, but also had empathy for his his difficulties. But you point out something in your book about Karzai that's very you know uh, important, and it speaks to the problems we had training Afghan national security forces, which is Karzai doesn't have much interest, uh, as you point out in the book, in doing it. He's not involved. He doesn't uh, seem to care much about building uh, both an army uh, or a police. He's he's more, I think, kind of interested actually in the police because of the territorial police that uh, you know would have helped him build some political power base in in various parts of the country, but not the army at all. How do you explain that? His lack of presence on the battlefield is probably probably his greatest fault in in my in, in my estimation that, that he would routinely kind of stay in Kabul instead of going out places. Some of it you can explain that by, like I just did, he doesn't want to say that there's an insurgency. He doesn't want to face that. But I think it's a little bit more than that, too. And I think he doesn't like armies very much. He inherently doesn't like war. Um, and he has a, a viewpoint that armies cause problems. He may have a little bit of a kind. There's, there's a, you've probably experienced this in, 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 in your own time in the region, that being a soldier in much of the Middle East doesn't connote the same kind of thing it connotes here. And so like anthropologists like Olivier Waugh will note this, that being a soldier means that it's more like you're, you're a worker, you're a workman. You're not part of the ruling political class. And I think Karzai has some of that there. Now, also, the army was started being under Mohammed Fahim, the, the big Panjshiri Tajik leader and being funded by us. So it wasn't something that belonged to Karzai. And since it didn't belong to Karzai, he's not spending a lot of time worrying about it or, or trying to develop it. He sees it as an opposite pole of power that's problematic for him. Why is he spending so much time in Kabul? Why is it when in 2006, when the enemy is really coming forward, why isn't he acting like he acted in 2001? Well, explain that a little bit. What, what do you mean by 2000, what he, what he was like in 2001? Well, so 2001, we often forget that you know, Karzai did something truly heroic in 2001. And many people criticize, why did you support Karzai? Why did we do this? Well, actually, if you look in 2001, he's incredibly impressive. The United States attacks Afghanistan, and he decides within days that he's going to be one of four people riding two motorcycles, going from the border of Pakistan up through Kandahar, up north of Kandahar. Kandahar is the Taliban capital, by the way, where all the Taliban are located. He's going to drive up there, drive into Urizgan, where some of his tribesmen are, and start a revolt against the Taliban. So he does this. He's almost killed and captured in the, killed or captured in the process, barely escapes because a U.S. helicopter comes to rescue him at the last minute, but then comes back in less than a week um, with a U.S. Special Forces team, actually organizes the tribes up in, up in Urizgan, marches down, and eventually um, secures the Taliban's departure entirely from Kandahar. Um, oh, and by the way, in the midst of this, a, an errant U.S. bomb strikes very close to him, wounds him, kills several of the supporters, um, kills, uh, kills Americans as well in this errant bomb that was, was miscalled in. And then at the end of this all, he's, it's declared that he will be the next leader of Afghanistan. So when you look at that, when you look at what he did there, he sounds like a dramatic leader. I guess I forgot to mention in this, during this, he's concerned about civilian casualties, trying to protect people, taking in Taliban to surrender. 
So he's leading from the front. He's building deals. He's creating peace. It, it's, it's a very impressive thing. But that doesn't last. And I don't have the best explanation to why he didn't want to get out of Kabul more. Was he worried about his life? Did he feel as king it was no longer his job to go down and do these things? That that was beneath him was going to undermine his own legitimacy. That's something common that you can kind of see in Afghanistan. So I, I don't know exactly why he didn't do these things. Later on, it becomes a little bit more clear. And there's, there's various parts of Afghanistan, various political dynamics emerge and tribal feuds emerge. And sometimes we take sides in one of those feuds. And that causes Karzai to say, I don't want to be a part of this. This isn't my problem. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get involved. McChrystal, much to his credit, actually got him back involved in like Kandahar. Did a very good job of that. Um, and when Karzai would go down to some places and play a role, he could make a big difference. But I'm sorry, I don't have a better exact answer. No, it sounds. It sounds like he felt as much discomfort being a wartime president as some American presidents seem to have after the initial uh, involvement in in Afghanistan. You talk a lot in your book about key turning points. Kind of walk us through the, the evidence for each and, and where you think these crucial inflection points were. We'll start early on. And the thing that's important about before 2005, and that's when we had the greatest latitude to make some different decisions. And that's where the, the opportunities are greatest that those decisions could have led to something different. At the end of 2001, we didn't offer to have the Taliban be part of the political process. And there's this important event that's very well known when Karzai is coming down from Uruzgan to Kandahar, a delegation of Taliban leaders comes to see him. That delegation includes Mullah Baradar. And they give him a letter and they say that we are um, willing to, to stop fighting. We don't want to have violence in Kandahar. We're willing to, to end this. And it's unknown what is exactly in the letter. Some people say in that letter, it simply said that these leaders would like amnesty. And we propose to have amnesty. We'll put down our arms. We'll go home. Another version says this letter was signed by Mullah Omar, and it was saying that he was willing to turn over everything to, to Karzai, and um, as long as the, and the movement will dissolve and, and everyone will go and live in peace. So we don't really know which one was said. We do know that when Karzai reported this up to the to U.S. government, that this was rejected. We refused either have to have any dealings um, with the Taliban. Now, at this point, of course, we're very upset about 9-11 and, and where there's a lot of concern that the, these Taliban leaders are going to be associated with al-Qaeda. And to be fair, their refusal to turn over uh, bin Laden when, when given a, an ultimatum uh, asking that they do that. Yeah, that didn't help them. Um, that, that, didn't, that didn't help. They didn't help paint themselves as people who, who weren't tied to al-Qaeda. Then in 2002, there's more attempts by various Taliban and various groups to reach out to, to Karzai. And there's supposedly an attempt at which they gave another letter to Karzai, and they said, we'd like to be part of the political process at Bonn. And supposedly Karzai asked us about that, and we said, no, we, we won't do that. That turned things off for a while, but then in 2004, there's more evidence of more feelers, um, at which point we tell Karzai, you can't have any dealings with the Taliban for these peace um, things, and, and we're going to put everyone on a blacklist. So a lot of the information, the evidence on this is somewhat murky. And what's really hard to tell is how many of these were individual individual feelers by Taliban, maybe concerned about themselves versus something that was approved by the Quetishur or approved by Mullah Omar to really happen. So there's a large amount of fuzziness there. But if we had entertained something, perhaps we would have gotten fewer Taliban to fight in the future. 
Another thing that's happening at the same time is we didn't build the army up. We took our time to make the decision uh, to build the army. And after that, we kind of uh, half-heartedly funded it. And there was lots of stops and starts to the program. I mean, instead of either building a large army that would have been able to cover the whole country or building a small capable army that could have fought the Taliban perhaps more effectively, we did neither. And by 2006, there was only 26,000 um, soldiers in the field, which is a it was a very small number to have. We recruited far more than that in the Korean War in a much shorter period of time. Put those two together. If we had brought the Taliban in plus trained the army, we would have had a Taliban that were weaker, a government that was stronger. Would that have meant that the war would have ended? Well, no, I can't really say that um, because we've seen now how effective the Afghan army was on its own, not very effective. And we know that the Taliban were fairly determined to come back. But you could have had a situation in 2006 where they were weaker, less able to take ground. The government was stronger. That could have meant fewer U.S. forces had to come in. Fewer U.S. casualties would have occurred. It would have created a more sustainable situation. So then let's move to uh, 2006, a Taliban offensive occurs. And with that happening, our options narrow in Afghanistan. It becomes more difficult to change the course of things. Why? Because it really is a raging insurgency with heavy battles and the Taliban taking large amounts of terrain. This also changes like the, uh, it changes the, 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 the political and the information atmosphere that exists because now there is an insurgency fighting an occupier. So the presence of that is going to motivate more people to join. It. It's going to, in a certain extent, uh, legitimize or at least propagandize the cause so it's creating it's it, the very existence of the war at this at this height and this intensity is creating new facts on the ground. At the same time, because we have to react to it, we're dropping more bombs. We're accidentally killing more civilians. We're going into more homes. We're creating violence places, which then also generates a reaction. Um, so all of that that makes it much more difficult to change course as the war moves forward. So when you look at after 2006, you're largely not talking about real opportunities. You're not really talking about any significant opportunities to bring peace. What you're talking about are opportunities to have better managed the conflict. You make a big point in the book about how, and this is a point that David Kilcullen has made as well in his book, The Accidental Guerrilla. Um, we, we created a lot of insurgents through the violence that uh, we used and hitting civilians. You point out Karzai was uh, constantly criticizing us for, was very exercised about. Several U.S. commanders were aware of it as well and tried to mitigate it. Um, Dave Barno uh, being one. I think Stan McChrystal and, and Dave Petraeus both also uh, were very, very aware of this and tried to mitigate it, yet we never uh, found a, a, a way to do it. Is that just because there is no way to do it? Or could we have been tactically more adroit? Some of it appears to have been driven by the fact that we were relying on Afghan sources of intelligence and being manipulated into being a part of their internecine political fights, uh, as opposed to actually going after insurgents. Um, so I think that's one reason. Uh, one reason is definitely we were being um, manipulated into their fights, being fed bad information. But that's not really all of it. And, and that in, in a certain way kind of understates the magnitude of the problem. Another part of the problem is we just didn't understand things. It's not that someone was trying to feed us bad information. is that we got information 
and we decided to interpret that. In, we misinterpreted that information because our knowledge wasn't very good. And we thought that those people there with guns and shooting in the air, well, those must be insurgents. Well, no, it's a wedding party, and we didn't have enough knowledge to, to recognize that. We were willing to often take risks to drop bombs in places because we want to make sure that our forces don't get killed or because we think we're really going after an IED layer or something that, that's going to be damaging to us. So we'll take the risk that we might kill civilians in that because we think that either the threat to us is worth it or, or we just think it's it, the, the, the gain to us is worth it, that it's worth it for the sake of the war to conduct the, the, the strike in this manner and, and not worry about it. Part of it is also we didn't realize that it would be the backlash uh, where we discounted it too much. Could more have been done? Yes, more, more could have been done. Uh, partly is restraining things, partly is having a higher um, level of requirement before you do certain kinds of raids and certain kind of operations. You can't, it, it is also true what you said is you, you can't avoid all of it. There's certain things that you will need to use air power for that there is a natural risk of, of causing civilian casualties. But, I, but that, that's not everything, so you can't, you can't sweep everything under that. But if, if the Taliban are attacking Afghan posts and it's a vital area and it's going to fall, then your choice is to let that fall or use airstrikes with the risk of civilian casualties. And it's a bad choice. It's a hard, that's a particularly hard choice to make. Um, but that may just be the case. Or if U.S. soldiers or Marines are somewhere in, in great danger in a firefight, especially if it's an urban area, you may have to choose between you. You will lose those Americans if you don't use air, air power. And that it's just a hard choice to make. And the last thing to say about this is any is that McChrystal did actually make a difference on this. He definitely deserves credit for his tactical directive, which limited the use of airstrikes in support of raids or in support of military operations. Um, he, was, he, he, under, he believed and he understood and he took in the information that our raids were causing more objection. He was clearly understood that this is a major problem for Karzai and that political problem was going to be huge for us. And so the actions he took did reduce the number of casualties. The unfortunate aspect of this was that, to some extent, those actions put our forces at more risk. Largely, that's because of how those instructions were interpreted. But, but, but all that matters in the end is that, that, that our troops were put at more risk. And that caused a reaction. To, that some of the enlisted and some of the, some of the forces on the ground, all the forces on the ground, not just the enlisted officers and enlisted, could be upset that they had to be at more risk. That got into the newspapers. The newspapers uh, published it, criticized him on it. And really, it's remarkable to what extent during that time in pressing the tackle directive, he ended up being largely alone. I mean, Petraeus kind of had his back to a certain extent, but not too many other people had his back to make this happen. I'm not sure if any... The reason he was able to make this happen is because he had such reputation as like the world's foremost counterterrorist hunter. And so he could get people to listen to him and to believe him because he's the guy who got Zarqawi and had conducted countless raids in Iraq. So he wasn't, if it was someone else, they wouldn't have been taken seriously. They never would have had the credibility to carry it off. So it, it is really quite something he managed to do it. I was with, I was with Stan and Balad the day after um, they got uh, Zarqawi and I got to review all the, all the videotapes. And I think you're probably right that his reputation preceded him. I want to kind of wrap up by tracing the arc of Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. You know, he was someone I worked with uh, for many, many years. And he, in many ways, is the 
uh, architect of the constitution that emerges out of the Loya Jurga in in 2002 and uh, three and the uh, election in 2004. Uh, he's really, in some sense, the person who may be most responsible for a Karzai's emergence as the president, as opposed to a return of the king of Zayir Shah. And then he reappears at the end of the story, uh, you know, in 2019 and 2020 and 2021. He's negotiating uh, with the Taliban, reaching the agreement on February 2020 about the future of Afghanistan. And and as Kabul is falling, he's negotiating with Baradar. So, uh, you know, how do you judge in the end of the day, you know, Zal's time and record in Afghanistan? How do you think he'll be seen by history? What will you write when you do the revised version of your book for paperback publication next summer? So Mikhulzad is remarkable, remarkable for his time in Afghanistan. And just like you said, being one of the founders of, of, how, every, of, of how everything was structured and then being here at the end, seeing him in Doha was also remarkable. The energy he has to talk to everyone, to be working multiple different lines at any time, to, to understanding he has to talk to the Taliban, plus he has to deal with D.C., plus he has to handle the region seeing a wide variety of angles um, to, to which to talk. You didn't to mention people. the Afghan government in those comments. Um, yeah, yeah, so the Afghan government too. He was talking to the Afghan government and just about every player in Afghanistan he was, he was talking to and dealing with. His understanding of Afghans and Afghan tradition in negotiations is absolutely invaluable because um, he understands when the Taliban are trying to do something. And the Taliban know he understands so they're less they're, they they don't want to play the same kind of tricks that might catch some of the rest of us off guard including those of us who may speak a few of the languages and then of course he does speak Pashtun he speaks Dari so he can easily converse back and forth and i mean as you know that's just invaluable in a negotiation so all of that was very impressive i guess the other thing was his 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 enthusiasm his optimism that something any you might say anything is possible but he wasn't limited by things. He was willing to take risks to try to make something happen, not assuming that a political settlement was impossible, but trying to find ways to make that happen. I'm very tempted at that time to view Zal as, as an Afghan who was trying to do whatever he could to save Afghanistan and not let it fall back to the Taliban. I'm tempted to think that, but I guess in, in the end, we don't really know everything that Ambassador Kulzad was thinking or doing. But it, it seemed like he was at the time that he was seized with the need to to make something good happen uh, for Afghanistan. He, he wasn't helped by a president who constantly kept saying, I want to get out uh, and saying it publicly, which made it very difficult to have any leverage with the Taliban as you were negotiating with them. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. That's quite important. He was, he was always confronted with the, the fact that the president could want to get out very soon. And as we know from various books that have come out, by the time negotiations had started, he was saying that he wanted to leave. Um, Khalilzad was pressured by that. And I don't think he would have made the concessions that were made or accepted the agreement that was written if that wasn't present. That's my strong feeling on that on that matter. How will history view him? On the one hand, I'm not sure how well history in the near term is going to view just about anyone who's involved in Afghanistan. I, I think that there, there's going to be few people that... Um, history draws out as as heroes. So I think Khalilza will bear criticism just like many people um, will bear criticism. But I'm hopeful over time there'll be kind of a more detached view 
of what was happening um, to see the strengths and weaknesses of the people who were involved and what they were trying to attain. Well, if there's going to be a more dispassionate view about what happened and one that weighs the evidence and the factors judiciously, they will have to start with Carter Malkazian's book, The American War in Afghanistan. Carter, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Shield of the Republic and helping us kick off this podcast. I'll have to read the revised uh, version next summer to, to see how Zal comes out. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it greatly.